Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. You hear this story and you're like, hey, I remember that from almost exactly two years ago. Don't sweat it. I'm going a diff- different direction with it today, but I think it's a, it's a super, it's kind of a hard passage to read, but I think it's super important. Otherwise, I wouldn't be uh, sharing it again. But I don't know how much you remember, so rather than just refer to it, I'm going to read. Uh, we're going to start in Judges chapter 20. Now, I'm going to tell you this, if you want to get the full effect It's important to read Judges 19 first, but I want to give you a family-friendly version of it because it's not family-friendly before we look at the importance of chapter 20. I'm not going to read chapter 19 today, but I'll give you a a little background so that we can read chapter 20 with a little more clarity. A little bit of history, just a little bit of history. The children, the, the tribes of Israel have inhabited and continue to spread out and inhabit the land of promise. And they're settling in the cities of this land that God had given them. And there was a man who was from the tribe of Levi living in the mountains of Ephraim. And uh, he took a concubine from Bethlehem. And that's a complicated word, but in this particular case, it essentially means he took her to marry. And she ran around on him for a while. Remember, I'm keeping this G-rated. <laughs> and uh, he pursued her. There's shades of Hosea a, a little later on, you know. He, she, she was the one who ran off, and he pursued her, spoke kindly, spent some time with her and her father, and then they uh, decided to, to uh, move on back to Ephraim. And they took off a little late in the day, and they came to a city, and uh, the man's servant said, let's, let's stay here instead of traveling through the night. And he says, there are, there are no children of Israel here. Let's move on to one of the cities that at least... Uh, the Israelites have inhabited. So they come to Gibeah. And this was largely inhabited by the children of Benjamin. This was a Benjamite town. And one thing led to another, and something really bad happened. Happened to this man's concubine. Echoes of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I have to tell you this, that the, the concubine ends up dying. And I'm skipping some details on purpose. But let me say this, since I know you're going to go home and read it. The good guy in this story is the Levite. And he's still a horrible person. This is, this is the depths to which the people have sunk uh, by this time in biblical history in the book of Judges. This story starts with a very familiar refrain, which is, um, in those days there was no king in Israel. And a little bit later you'll see that phrase again, and it's followed by, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now some people were righter than others. But the very fact that the Levite made the decision he made and, um, and some other things were, were not indicative. Not every, just because he was a Levite, just because he was the victim or his concubine was the victim and he was the good guy, doesn't mean he was a good guy. Not that he was uh, inherently 100% righteous, okay? Anyway, the Levite, enraged at what has happened to his concubine, sends uh, forensic evidence of the crime to all of the other tribes of Israel, encouraging them to join him and uh, bringing these Benjamites who committed the crime to justice. And so they surround the city, they send a messenger and say, you know who did this, so send them to us so that they can be punished according to the law. And 
the Benjamites decided that they did not want to uh, extradite these criminals and that they would just fight instead. Now they're surrounded uh, by about 400,000 men and there were 26,000 Benjamites in Gibeah. But these 26,000 basically included some Delta Force type soldiers. These were very, very skilled fighters. And so they were going to take on the rest of these tribes. And uh, I don't think it matters much in terms of the skill of the fighters and everything. I'm not sure how much it matters in terms of the way this plays out, but I just thought I'd mention it because the Bible does too. Anyway, the children of Israel, once they realize that uh, the Benjamites are not going to give these criminals up, that they're going to fight, they set themselves in battle array. They get their formations out there for war, and they're getting ready to go, and we'll pick it up in Judges chapter 20, uh, verse 18. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. And they said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah. And on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. That is a beating. That's a bad day. And a head scratcher too because God spoke to them, didn't he? It wasn't like they just went in there without inquiring of the Lord. They're going to do this righteous deed. They're going to avenge, uh, take this act of vengeance on these criminals. And they said, they, who do we send first? God says, Judah first. And they go in there in obedience to God. Uh, and they suffer this terrible defeat. And we'll come back to that. The good news is that Israel didn't give up. They were convinced in the righteousness of their cause and maybe even saw it as a test of their faith. And they weren't going to walk away from it. So we'll pick it up in Judges chapter 20, verse 22. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. So this time, they were a little more humble. Uh, first times they, the first time they formed the battle lines, they had a plan and said, who's first? The second time, they formed battle lines, and they said, shall we go? And both times it appears that God gave them positive direction. But look at what happens next in Judges chapter 20, verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the covenant of, God, covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, 
for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Now, I know this might sound nitpicky, but the difference here is super important. In those first two battles, Israel had already made their decision. They put themselves in battle array before they ever inquired of the Lord. We've got our plan. We just need your blessing on it. Who do you, first time it wasn't, shall we go? Here we are ready. It was like, we're going. Who do you want us to go first? And I think when God said Judah first, there might be some spiritual significance to it, but I don't think it mattered. I think God knows, who, what do I care? Send Judah. And nothing happened. Second time, they set them, second time, they set themselves in battle array. And while the army is out there, the other people went and inquired of the Lord, do you want us to continue this? And he says, yeah, go. The third time, instead of setting themselves in battle array, they all went and they wept and they fasted and they all inquired of the Lord, asked not just who first, not just shall we go, but shall we go or shall we not go? And when God responded, he didn't just give them a command, he gave them a promise. Go. I'm going to deliver them into your hand this time. I said it seemed nitpicky, but what I mean here, I think there are times when God seems to deal harshly with his people. And I want you to uh, remember that as we read this next passage. This is from 1 Corinthians, New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, Paul here is writing to the Corinthians who are under grace, not the law. And I think the message here for them, and by the way, you look at this list, and it's not exhaustive. We'll read another list a little bit later. Uh, but you read these things, these sins that they fell into, and Paul's saying, so don't you, all these sins are still possible, don't fall into them. And when we, we read a list of sins, uh, our tendency, I think, most people's tendency, you know, the, over, the most overused, overquoted verse or tiny part of a verse in the Bible, especially over the last 10 years, is what? Thou shalt not judge. And yet we know that God gives us clear passages and clear judgments and commands on sin, on the right way to live, the wrong way to live. Why? At least partly so that we can make accurate judgments. We are supposed to make judgments. We're not supposed to go around condemning people, but we ought to be able to look at anybody 
any situation, any, any uh, circumstance or sin and say, that's sin. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me this is sin. Unfortunately, when we look at this, we tend to look at this list and pick out one and say, aha, see what you're doing is wrong. And we tend to minimize the one we come across that kind of touches on our lives. Yeah, I struggle with that. But the main thing is, I'm not doing this, and you are. And we could bring up what Jesus said about getting the plank out of your eye about the, the, before you get the splinter out of your brother's eye. The main thing is, yeah, we should use the word to correct one another, to render judgments on certain things that, the, the, that society is doing, that individuals are doing. But first and foremost, we should approach the word of God like a mirror. We should be looking for ourselves in it first so that we can let God deal with us. Amen? So anyway, Paul's writing these Christians under grace, and the message for us is, yeah, Christ has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, but look at how serious sin is to God. People perished and right quick for their sins in the past because these sins are an abomination to our holy God. And if God dealt so harshly with these sins and God doesn't change, how dare we take our sin less seriously? It's not a threat of damnation, you understand. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to pay attention to two things, the magnitude of Christ's death and God's love and also the repugnance of our sins, just how repugnant our sin is to God. Sometimes we forget that because, unfortunately, sometimes our sin isn't very repugnant to us. Look at this, too. If you read uh, the last part of Acts chapter 4, you'll read about how the needs of the followers of Christ were being met, not by decree or not by law, but those who were, uh, those believers who had possessions, who had lands, were willingly selling them and bringing the proceeds to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute them to everyone who had need. And it worked. But in Acts chapter 5, a guy and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira, you know this story, they sold some land. You have to read it carefully, but you don't have to read between the lines at all. It's, it's very clear what's happening. What they did was bring part of the proceeds of what they sold, uh, but told them that what they brought was exactly what they sold it for. It's as simple as that. They had a piece of land. They sold it. Say they sold it for $10,000. They brought $5,000 to the apostles, and they said, wow, where'd you get it? We sold this land. How much did you sell it for? $5,000. We brought it all. They didn't have to do that. Peter even questioned them. He was operating in the gift of the word of knowledge, by the way. He, he knew exactly what had happened, uh, but he made, it, he made it very clear that this was your land. You didn't, not only did you not have to sell it, you didn't have to give it, any of it away. It was yours to do with what you wanted. Why did you make a point of lying about what you gave? Don't you realize you didn't lie to man, you lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a pretty harsh, if we were confronted that boldly today with something, a lot of people would just walk out just for getting called out. What happened to these two? They dropped dead. One after the other. Gave, gave the second one a chance to tell the truth. And nice dies, Sapphira dies, and young men carried them out. Now, 
again, that kind of looks harsh to me, <laughs> all right? They did at least give some. Maybe they gave a majority of the prophets to the church, and they didn't have to do that. So yeah, they lied a little. Was that worth a death sentence? But I think it's the same principle as 1 Corinthians 10. The church, these things happened just as the church was getting started. And, these, and the church had to be founded on some rock-solid truths. And I think these early, this early example of judgment, divine judgment, happened as a reminder to us that God's not playing games. All right? He was making sure that people took righteousness and holiness seriously. During this same time, this early period of the church, what else was happening? Signs, wonders, miraculous healings. Now, these things still happen. Do we see them happening with the abundance and the regularity that we see them happening in the early days of Acts? I don't, I don't think we do. But that's not because God has chosen not to do it. I think maybe, just maybe, at least think about it this way. If we want to see an abundance of healings and miracles and signs and wonders, are we okay if it is also accompanied by stark divine judgment? Do we want to take that deal? And I'm not saying that's the way it is. I am saying that I do believe the message of Scripture is that we are, able to, that we are supposed to take God's promises seriously, but we are also supposed to take his commands seriously. We also, we've seen the joke uh, or the, the snarky little comment, you know, they are the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Ha, ha, ha. But often we do treat his commands, his New Testament commandments, as suggestions. This is the way we ought to, but it's no big deal if we don't live this way. Anyway, we are to be utterly convinced that his, good, that his plans for us are good plans, that he has a determination to work good in our lives, but we also have to be convinced, personally convinced, that he detests sin and he won't leave it undealt with in our lives. We have to be okay with that. If we are going to be surrendered to him and expect to see his goodness manifest in our life, you, you better believe his judgment's going to be manifest in your life. And I don't mean judgment is in damnation. I mean he's going to confront you with, you've got to get this squared away. Stop this. Start this. Tighten it up here. And we need to be obedient. Let's look at one more thing. This is in Exodus chapter 26. As uh, the children of Israel, as you know, when Moses leads them, God uses Moses to lead them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he's taken them to the land of promise. They didn't take a super direct, quick route. They stopped. They camped out. This is where God gave them the law. Uh, anywhere from nine months to a year, they were there. And then before they moved on, God gave them instructions to build something called a tabernacle. Now, what this was going to be was basically a mobile temple. Once they got settled in the land of promise, and the capital established, God would provide essentially the same blueprint for the temple. But this was going to be a big tent where they could conduct all of the thing, all the worship ceremonies that were going to take place in the temple were going to be conducted in this tabernacle. And so he tells them, here's how to build it. Now, ushers get ready, because every time I read this passage, the fire falls, there is weeping, 
There is laughter. It is a joyous. It's going to get loud in here with the amens. I'm just preparing you as we read this, all right? So let's pick it up. What I say, Exodus chapter 26? Pick it up in verse 26. No, verse 1. Verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and purple, linen and blue, purple and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edges, edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the other, on this end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Somebody say amen. amen. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain 4 cubits and the 11 curtains shall all have the exact same measurements. And you shall, have, you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves and you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost one set, 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set and you shall make 50 bronze clasps Oh my goodness, I'm going to skip down to verse 15. In the tabernacle you shall make of the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons, somebody say tenons, shall be in each board for, for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards on the south side. You shall make 40 sockets, somebody say sockets, of silver under the 20 boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons and for the second side of the tabernacle to the north. I can't go on. It's just so heavy. Is this a blessing to read? Isn't that exciting? And it goes on for the entire chapter and more and more and more. Screens, sockets, clasps, curtains, links, measurements, materials. That is a lot of detail for a tent now, I don't have any doubt that if somebody, and somebody probably has, done a deep study into each one of these measurements, each one of these materials, each one of these, talk about how far away the hooks are from one another. And there probably is, at some point, some spiritual significance to every measurement and every material. The, the, the dying it red in one case, I'm sure. There's, there's a blood reference there, okay? But the main thing is, God invented engineering and architecture, so he was making sure the thing held together for the purposes it was being made for. It had to travel, it had to stand, it had to be sturdy, it had to last. But there's something else here, something that speaks directly to you and me. God did not say, I've brought you out of bondage, and I'm bringing you into a land that flows with milk and honey, so worship me. And the best thing to do is just to build a place that's just set aside for that. I don't care what it looks like. Just make sure it's big enough to accommodate the people. And I don't care how you worship me, as long as you build a place to worship me and you worship me. Didn't do that at all, did he? He said, here is every single detail spelled out. 
you build the place, and you build it exactly out of this stuff, exactly this way, and when you worship me, you bring this. You come, and and it's important because in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, all the furnishings that are inside, in the courtyard and the tabernacle itself, are all important images that would eventually point people to Jesus Christ. Every, every piece of the, the furnishing, every part of that worship spoke something about Jesus, about their future permanent salvation. But meanwhile, he says, you need to come to me and worship, and you can't just come any old way. I think the New Testament equivalent of that whole passage is this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, but through me. That's Jesus, of course. And the wonderful thing is that we are no longer under the law. Our relationship with God is rooted in love, love for him, his love for us, and our love for one another. But Jesus said this. If a man loves me, he will keep my commandments. We blow that off way too easily, and that is what makes a church powerless. There are a lot of people saying, because churches won't do this or won't do that, and they're usually tying it with some political statement, that's that's making the church weak. That's not what the Bible says makes the church weak. I'm going to read it to you right out of Scripture. You know the phrase, I know you do, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now that, that phrase, and I'm not saying this is a 100% wrong application, I'm just saying it's, it's out of context, but here's the way I heard that preached for years, or at least referred to in sermons for years. Uh, they have formal worship. We have a meeting house, we have a deno- it's a, the, some dead denomination. We go, we go to church, we have formal worship, but we are denying the gifts of the Spirit. There's no power, there's no miracles, because there's no expectation of those things. It's a form of godliness, but no power. It's not what this passage is addressing at all. Let's look at it in context. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 3, but know this, that in the last days, here's another one of those mirror passages, by the way, perilous times will come, Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, that's a lot of stuff, by the way, going through that list. And as I'm reading that, I don't know why this never hit me before. You know when we sing that heavy load bearer, broken heart repairer. I wonder if we could make a song about us, about unloving, unforgiving, without self-control, brutal despisers of good. Anyway, we don't want to describe ourselves that way, right? But in the last days, is what people are going to be looking at about. And it says, having a form of godliness, but denying his power. I think he's talking about these things coming into the church. And there's a couple... I think direct application, what, what this passage about having a form of godliness and denying its power, the main things it's saying is this, that our formal godliness can be equated with professing Christ, claiming to be a Christian, even going to church. But in this case, 
living in a way that is utterly uninfluenced by his word, by his commandments. Are you a Christian? Yes. Can you tell me what a Christian is? Yes. I have uh, confessed my sins. I've confessed Jesus as Lord, and I've invited him to be uh, my Savior. Okay? But is there anything about your lifestyle that is described in this passage? I'm not saying you're totally given over to it. Can you say that the way you are living, the way you are speaking, what the Bible calls your conversation, and it's not just talking about our verbal conversation, but our manner of living, is there anything about your lifestyle and even your worldview that is easily distinguishable, that is in any way contrasted or in contrast to the rest of the world? Because the crazier and stupider and more sinful this world gets, the more you are going to stick out like a sore thumb if you are living the life that Christ commands you to live. So when we yield to these things and we say, God loves me anyway, I can't save myself, that's all true. But if our attitude about our sin is just, can't stop it, and it's not that big a deal since it's forgiving, we are denying the power of godliness. Not in this case the power of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, meaning it doesn't matter how I live, but it does. Not just to you, but it matters to society. It matters to your community. It matters to your family. They need to see that Christians are different. Why would they be tempted? Why would they be attracted? Why would they consider embracing Christianity if it makes no difference in the life of the Christian? But godliness does have power. It's worth pursuing for our sake and the sake of the world. Connected to that is, it is denying the power of God. Praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. Because... What you're saying is, I, I need salvation, and I know the cross was sufficient, the finished work of Christ on the cross was sufficient to save me, but I am who I am. You're denying the power of that, not just that conversion experience, but that relationship with God. You're denying God's power to change you. What? Change me? Yeah, change you. Change your desires. Do you remember we talked about this last week? We began to talk about it last week, where if we are submitting our desires to God, he'll give us the desires he wants us to have. He'll cause us to desire the things that he wants us to have. There is no profit for ourselves, and there is no advantage or blessing to the world that God has called us to reach if we deny the power of God himself to change our desires tame our passions, alter our appetites. We have abundant examples of that in Scripture and abundant examples of that here and abundant examples of it down throughout history, how God has not just saved people from hell, but how he has transformed their lives and used them 
to manifest his goodness to thousands and even millions of people who are brought into the kingdom because they observe that change. Is this what we want? Is it what you want? Because now we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. There is only so much you can do having made a decision for Christ. The, the, the uh, disciples, the 120 who were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost had made a decision for Christ. They had been born again. And they had also been ordered to wait there until they received the Holy Spirit. And we are going to be talking about that two weeks from today. Neil and Danette next week, Pentecost Sunday the following week, and we are going to be talking about the power, the life-changing, world-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand up with me, please? And let me go back here for just a minute because... When we read that moving passage about the tabernacle, and then going back to the first story, we read where the children of Israel went up against the Benjamites of Gibeah. There is a super important thread running through all that. And it's not just, hey, these bad things happen to those people as an example for us to take our lives seriously. There's a clear uh, directive woven through those stories, well, not stories, those episodes, that if we are going to do something as believers in God, it is super important to seek his guidance first. Now, let me, let me, little addendum to the sermon before I get to where I'm, what I'm standing here for. If you are living in daily submission to him, you're not, there's not unconfessed sin in your life that you're harboring. You're spending time in the word and you're seeking him as a matter of habit you can more or less trust your desires. If you're not spending time in the Word, if you're not seeking His input day to day, then no matter how good the desire seems to be, what was wrong? Hey, we're going to go avenge this woman. This was sin. We're going to judge the sin. That was good. But they weren't seeking God's, God's will on this matter. You might have a, a desire that seems good, but if you haven't submitted it to God, you can't trust it. You can't trust yourself to be led by your desires in that case. So let's just make sure we're staying close, making a habit of listening for God's voice, seeking his input. Otherwise, what's it, what's it like? We're building our house on the sand. Uh, they labor in vain that build the house. And, and, unless, uh, unless the Lord builds this house, they labor in, in vain that build it. So let's not make our plans until we see what God's plan is. Deal? The other thing is this. Jesus really did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, the world is offering, has always offered uh, competing voices. Our God is the true one. No, our God is the true one. And now we live in a more dangerous age where it's your truth is the truth for you. Whatever works for you, whatever gets you closer to God, that's what you pursue. And Jesus still stands there saying, uh-uh, I'm the only way. Yeah, you're right. You're good for pursuing God, for wanting to see God, for uh, wanting to grow spiritually, but you are not going to get anywhere. Everything else is an illusion. Everything else is deception. I'm the only way. Because your problem is not that you aren't enlightened enough, your problem is not this that, uh, it's not, certainly not that you're smart enough. It's that you're sinful. And we see 
how God treats sin, how God views sin, kills it. He doesn't tolerate it in his presence. We as sinful people, even if I'm less sinful than you, doesn't make me any more fit for the kingdom of heaven. No, the only thing that can be done is to wash this sin away, and the only thing that can do that is the blood of Christ. There's a death sentence on me, and Jesus fulfilled that. That sentence was passed and carried out at the crucifixion of Jesus. My only part in this is to say, yeah, I needed that. There was no way to get to God without that, so I accept it. I accept that sacrifice on my behalf, and I surrender myself to you. If I'm going to receive payment for my salvation, if I'm going to receive the benefits of that, the cost is my life. And I'm not talking about dying for him, although we certainly should be able to do that, but we should consider ourselves dead to ourselves, and we give our life to him. There's more to giving our life to him than laying down our life for him. We are saying, you're in charge now. It's no longer I that lives. It's Christ who lives in me. Now, that sounds hard, and I'm not going to lie to you, sometimes it is. But it is utterly fulfilling. Why? Because it's exactly what you were created for. Is, is it hard? Yeah, that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit, so that we can do it. We can't do it in our own strength. It is the life you were meant to live. It's what you were created for. So here's my question. Will you surrender to Jesus this morning? Will you come and say, I'm done wasting time. I'm done kicking against the goads. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be born again. And God, I am trusting you to empower me to live a life that is pleasing to you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come and receive that free gift of salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, which alone can remove the stain of sin and make us fit for heaven, fit for your presence, and fit for your service while we are here. Father, it's my prayer, and I believe it's the prayer of every believer in this room, that if anybody needs to make that decision, that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who has not surrendered their life to Christ, bowed their knee, to his lordship, that you would speak to them as only you can, that you would move them and convict them as only you can and cause them to desire and grant them the boldness and the humility to make that decision today. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.